my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. Over the last five years, the Bitcoin Conference has become the world's largest gathering of Bitcoiners. From breaking announcements and international media coverage to countless meaningful talks by thought leaders and industry innovators, we are excited to continue our drive for global hyper-Bitcoinization. From July 25th to the 27th, 2024, we'll be taking the Bitcoin Conference to the city of music and freedom, Nashville, Tennessee. Join thousands of attendees for countless opportunities to learn, engage, and network across three days of pure Bitcoin signal. Get your tickets now for the best price at b.tc forward slash conference. You are not going to want to miss what Nashville has in store. My fellow plebs, Bitcoin Magazine is headed back to Amsterdam in 2023. We're returning to Westergast to build on this historic success and continue our mission of global hyper-Bitcoinization. In its inaugural year, Bitcoin Amsterdam was the biggest European Bitcoin event in history. Held from October 12th to the 14th in 2022 at Westergas Event Forum, nearly 3,000 attendees jumped at the opportunity to learn, engage, and party with fellow Bitcoiners. 126 brilliant speakers from all over Europe and beyond took the stage to represent different angles and present various perspectives. Offering six different on-site locations and three fully programmed stages, we are absolutely stoked to catapult the European community to the global stage. Tickets are at their lowest prices right now. Lock yours in at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. That's b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. I'm really excited to bring Matt on Cosmic Bitcoin today and just a little bit of exposition for, for Cosmic Bitcoin. This is a, a Twitter spaces I host with CK, who is not here today. But, and we try to take a kind of a bird's eye view on some of the really interesting underlying mechanisms that are taking place within Bitcoin and everything that it'll it, you know, impact. And we've had guests on, such as Drew Bansal, you know, talking about Bitcoin astronomy, kind of the, the intergalactic or interstellar aspects of proof of work, that kind of... A, more of a sci-fi twist on things and you know had Matthew Pines talking philosophy and today we're really excited to bring Matt Perkowski on who's a highly interdisciplinary thinker kind of dabbles in philosophy cognitive science complex adaptive systems evolutionary biology and, and everything in between so Matt has some some great work that he's put out I'll be sharing that in the next shortly but ultimately kind of as far as I can tell Matt's perspective really focuses on the idea of coherence in, you know, emerge, emergent systems. And we're going to kind of tease apart exactly what that means. But kind of the crux of things is that we have, you know, emergent structures uh, when we put together many, uh, I guess, subcomponents within a system. And then 
ultimately they interact with one another and create a kind of a whole agent that that is kind of has its own dynamics and also can impact the the subcomponents of the system from which it emerges in in really novel and interesting ways. So we're going to be diving a little bit into into that and touching on things like thermodynamics and biology, kind of a whole a whole bevy of interesting topics. But Matt, really excited to have you on today. I guess just to start things, I'd be curious if you could kind of give perhaps a more granular overview of like, you know, what is your background and, you know, how do you how do you see that relating to Bitcoin? Overall, really excited to to bring you um, in contact with our audience today. I think you have a lot to offer a really unique perspective. Yeah, thanks, Spencer. It's, it's good to be here. Uh, with respect to background, I, I mean, with respect to background in Bitcoin specifically, it's interesting how things have come full circle in my life because you know, much of what I'm interested in goes all the way back to some research that I was doing as an undergraduate, working with primates, actually, working with capuchin monkeys at the Comparative Cognition Lab at Yale University on trying to understand the extent to which our human irrational tendencies or or what are called irrational tendencies uh, that show up in various kinds of economic behavior, uh, how far back in our evolutionary history those extend. So we were actually teaching monkeys how to use money, uh, which obviously brought up many questions around what money is, the nature of this representational system, how different intelligent systems, including humans, and non-humans, non-human primates, conceptualize money and how you know how its usage is relevant and and what ex, you know what aspects of our psychology extends so far back in time that you know they they transcend humanity itself and are actually capable of being used by non-human primates. So that got me really interested in a lot of these questions. I started doing a bunch of agent-based modeling. I started getting you know, those kind of this was around two thousand and 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 five and two thousand six. Started getting into programming. Agent-based modeling, simulation of various kinds of systems. You know, that eventually I decided not to go into academia. It, my my career took me into the private sector. I worked for a number of very you know larger companies. People will be familiar with Netflix, for example. But you know, did a bunch of different types of software work. Everything from systems architecture at lower levels up through UI and UX. I was taking advantage of some of that you know cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology background, integrating with a lot of designers and, and engineers. Then, you know, went independent and, you know, that took me all around the world, a lot of different interesting experiences. But fundamentally, you know, when that was happening, I was getting back into Bitcoin or just crypto economic, so to speak, protocols, because here they are obviously becoming, this is probably around 2012 or so. And I've had a little bit of a finger on Bitcoin since you know, 2009, since the beginning of it. I was interested in, in these spaces just because of my research. But yeah, started trying to understand what it actually meant for these kinds of representational and monetary systems that were emerging, taking advantage of you know, the intersection of computation and information, and what it meant for those to be emerging within our current culture, and what that meant from a perspective of you know, new technologies and what that enabled in our, our collective, so to speak, in terms of the problems that we were grappling with by introducing the internet and the communications issues that we were having as a society that were emerging and, and we were starting to try to figure out, you know, with respect to social media and how basically the entire space of crypto, and you know, it's not a rant, not random that it emerges when it emerges in history, when we're beginning to grapple with many of the issues of centralization that were showing their cracks in the early 20th, 21st century. And so I was, you know, applying a lot of concepts of emergence, uh, emergent systems. You, know, you mentioned that a little bit, we can get into further and get further into what that actually means later. But yeah, anyhow, that's kind of a high level overview. Right now I'm, I'm actually doing MI, ML and AI work in you know, what's called 
active inference. So it's not the kind of LLM type of stuff, but it's actually applying a theory. And we probably talk about this as well a little bit, the free energy principle and active inference, applying this perspective on emergent intelligence to the mapping of various kinds of human systems. So I'm building some infrastructure that enables people or companies to sort of map out their own human and technological networks as emergent intelligences that can actually have perceptions, beliefs, and then are grounded in the world in a way that things like LLMs are not. And I think that also actually relates quite a bit to uh, certain kinds of differences between representational systems such as Bitcoin and, and others that depend on more you know, kind of a, a proof of stake mechanisms. And I'm sure we'll get into that as well, because you, you said you were interested in talking about that. And so very high level overview, bit of a scattershot, but that's kind of history and, and where I'm currently at and happy to take it from there, wherever you want to go. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so much to go off there. And, you know, one thing that really caught my attention when I found your work was as you kind of invoked the, the free energy principle and, and active inference. And those were things that had caught my attention, just kind of, you know, satisfying my curiosity about I guess, cognition and collective intelligence. And I was just thrilled when I saw that, you know, you also had an interest in Bitcoin and I was like, wow, this would be a great fit for the show to bring you on and help spark the curiosity of our audience as well for you applying, you know, this framework for, for understanding exactly what Bitcoin is. And I think there's also just such a, a really interesting thread we can pull on kind of relating Bitcoin to energy and kind of the, the I guess, equivalent of, of energy and information also just runs so deep. And I think you know, Bitcoiners, we were often kind of, I guess, a little bit frustrated with people saying, you know, proof of stake and proof of work are equivalent, or, you know, you can just, you know, get rid of 99% coins energy usage. It's it's wasteful, all of these things. And I mean, I think speaking for a lot of Bitcoiners here, I think we, we would categorically disagree with that claim. And I thought you, you know, you had a podcast appearance with Jim Rutt and you guys had some, some great back and forth kind of diving deep into these topics and some, some friendly disagreement as well. But I think I think a good place to start is to kind of set the stage for for what emergent phenomena are. I mean, I would love you know to you to add a little bit of color here. I think you know my definition may may fall a little bit short. But ultimately, as I see it, like emergent phenomena are basically kind of a a a meta, I guess a meta pattern that emerges when you have a bunch of locally interacting agents, and they create that that local interaction creates an emergent whole. And so some, some examples of this are like, we had Anish Carvey on recently talking about this and talking about kind of the, the irreducibility of the market process in the context of, of emergence. And so kind of what, one way to think about it is like, if you have a flock of starlings, these birds flock in you know, hundreds of thousands of birds at a time, all of these birds are operating with really simple rules that govern their local interactions. So, you know, they're looking at like seven neighbors around them. And based on the position of those neighbors, they will then reposition themselves. And yet this emerges, there's this, this ordered whole that emerges. So, I mean, you have these, these beautiful coherent patterns of, of flocks of starlings. And so that's just one example, but, but we see this all across all types of nature. And I think there's just so many cool avenues to go down kind of, you know, in, in terms of agent-based modeling, I think it's, it's really interesting to understand what, what agency is. And as well, there is kind of the work of Michael Levin also kind of Pulls, pulls this thread a little bit too. He's a, as far as I can tell, a theoretical biologist who who invokes these ideas, but talks about mm -hmm. kind of, I guess, the, the the hierarchical organization of agents and, and you know, what that means for the, the whole itself as far as understanding their collective intelligence. And, and there's so many great parallels here to understand, you know, what is the, the collective intelligence of a marketplace? And I think that, you know, we have so many collective action problems today. And for me, when I saw Bitcoin as kind of a way of creating this like 
stable whole, a thing for humanity to organize itself around, to, to signal back and forth and to kind of organize our, our interactions. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. And so long story short, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on like, what is the role of money in an economy? Like, I think to kind of set the stage, like there is kind of this idea of, you know, these individual economic agents signaling to one, one another. And as I see it, the way in which they signal is by using money. And there is a fidelity to that communication. Um, and we've had uh, Aaron Segal on the podcast before talking a little bit about Bitcoin information theory, talking about ideas of, of Shannon entropy. And ultimately kind of his, his viewpoint is that Bitcoin is a, a much higher fidelity communication mechanism for these cooperating agents. So I guess, first of all, like, you know, how does that land for you? Do you, do you see kind of money as being this, this mechanism for, for coordinating between agents? And then, you know, how does Bitcoin fit into that? Do you, do you find it to be a, a, I guess, a much cleaner form of communication for, for organizing a cooperation? Sure. So that's, to some extent, that kind of starting at the, the end of the story, I think that question of, of what is money, at least from my perspective, it, it flows from a number of other first principles and, and, and cons concepts and consequences of processes that you know, go further back and relate to kind of your initial, your initial questions or your initial concerns around complexity and emergence. So I, I will not forget to answer the what is money question. I think we should circle back to that. It's very important. And, and that's where we want to get to as an end goal. I want to first address the, the sort of, you know, you're talking about this, you asked the questions of what is emergence or, you know, also, you know, we had spoken a little bit about complexity and other conversations we've had before this. And I think just going to just to set the stage there. You know, when we talk about emergence, when people talk about you know, patterns that essentially emerge and take on their own kinds of agency or take on their own kinds of causal import in the world, you know, one way, you know, I think you know, one better way of thinking about this is if you can invert that and you can talk about, you know, a lot of people will speak about complex systems and it's very difficult to actually pin down what complex systems mean. Different people will have different definitions, but a set of definitions that I really gravitate toward myself are those that are associated with the, the inability to break a system or to decompose a system without losing some element of its causal tendency or the way that it actually is going to play out in the world. Or, you know, if you, if you attempt to take a system, break it down into its parts or compress it into a representation that is a simplification, you actually lose information. And therefore, if you try to reconstruct or simulate that system, you actually are unable to do so at the fidelity of the system itself. And therefore it becomes unpredictable over time. You know, this is known in terms of like chaos theory, a sensitive dependence on initial conditions, right? Where you know, depending on the very small details of where you begin a system, it can actually take very divergent, very divergent pathways, even though that system is, is in theory, a deterministic system. So people like Wolfram in our world today have, you know, he's characterized this as computational irreducibility. Right. So the ability, the, the fact that certain systems understand the evolutionary trajectory over time of those systems or the way that they are going to behave in light of their environment. Uh, the only way to actually understand that is to play out that system itself. No simulation of that system or computation on that system is actually going to, with 100% you know, fidelity, allow you to simulate that future. And that, that would be a computational irreducible system. And then so, you know, flipping it back again to the question of emergence, the question of emergence pertains to why is it that 
the universe gives rise to certain kinds of order, certain kinds of systems, certain kinds of patterned dynamics, let's say, that seem to have a, a somewhat predictable causal structure. But as soon as you actually try to capture that causal structure, you begin to lose information about that system. And, and this kind of emergence happens all the way, you know, it happens at very low levels. Right? If we go back all the way to the beginning of our universe, or at least what we know about the beginning of our universe, we see that that beginning was an extremely homogenous space. Everything was very even. There was not a lot of asymmetry or a lot of information to work with at that point in time. And yet from that over time, I mean, everything around us, every, you know, every tree that you see, every animal, each one of us listening to this call, all of that pattern structure emerged across time due to some very simple constraints. And these constraints, yeah, and this is the reason I'm building up is because I think we have to, building up before we get to the question of money is because I think we, to, to really understand why agents must communicate with each other via compressions such as representational compressions, such as what we call money at the moment, we have to understand first what the kind of thing is that we call an agent or the kind of entity that could in theory benefit from that kind of exchange of information. What is that kind of thing doing in the world and why did it even come into existence to begin with? That is where this question of active inference comes into the picture of the free energy principle. That's why I was quite interested in this when I came across the work of Carl Friston, who was the initial progenitor of this theory. You know, the, the work and the research has spread out across a number of really interesting researchers at the moment. But you know, the reason his theories about this are, are so intriguing to me, at least, is because they, they posit certain constraints that must hold and, and you know, across all of the scales of emergent behavior insofar as any environment can start to essentially impress itself upon any other irregularity in that environment, such that that irregularity begins to encode information about its surroundings. And so you can actually show using some of these tools of the, of the free energy principle or of active inference that yeah. even something like random particles, a region of particles, if there is a kind of a stability to that region of particles, that region will start to encode information about the past trajectories and dynamics of its interactions with its surrounding environment. And so you, you know, even at these extremely early stages of self-organization in the universe, you can start to see that there can become causal boundaries between an embedding space or an environmental space and some sort of a, an ordered, a more highly ordered region. And you can actually use that theory to show that that encoding of information in that region will start to have inferential properties or predictive properties in relation to the environment. Now, this is a, you know, this is a very abstract kind of intelligence. It's not what people tend to think about when they think about a much more complex being like uh, an animal, but fundamentally this capacity for perception that we think of when we think of like, oh, we, we see something or we hear something or we taste something or we smell something. These are different modalities by which the world around us can impress itself upon us such that we produce or become a model of that world around us. And then by using our ability to act in the world based on that model, and seeing how much our actions match up with the responses the world gives back to us, how surprised we are in information theoretical terms by our actions in the world compared to what our model thinks that our actions will result in, we can continue to update our model in this feedback. So the free energy principle of active inference posits that at the very long 
tail end of this emergent chain of these kinds of processes. You know, we are here now as humans, you know, many animals are also here doing something analogous, although not exactly the same. Now, humans, with respect to us, we are along this evolutionary branch that is a highly social branch, right? We, if you look back in our evolutionary history, we are a social species that goes back far further than humanity itself. So there's no such thing as a fundamentally asocial human. And the interesting question, you know, is, you know, and you can study this through the lens of humans. It's also been studied through the lens of other social species like ants or bees or wasps. There's not just, there's a tension in this kind of a, a species between the individual agent and the individual agent's capacity to move through the world and perform tasks to do what it needs to do in its local life. But also, you know, the fact that there is a collective agency, there's a, there's a kind of cooperative capacity that would not be available to any individual agent, but when all of those agents come together, you know, whether that be in terms of a, you know, a chimpanzee troop or a human tribe, or even today, a human nation, nation state at a much larger scale of order, you know, we're capable of doing things that we are not capable of doing on our own. You know, this is the whole idea behind no man is an island. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so fundamentally, you know, when, now, now we're, we're finally all oh, this, we can feel free. We can revisit any part of this whole chain. I'm happy to, I'm just trying to give the. 10,000 or 50,000 foot view at first, but now we're back at this question of what is money and, you know, and, you know, money would be part of a category of systems I would classify as coherence mechanisms, which are the kinds of systems that mediate between that collective, that space of collective agency and that, uh, the scale of collective behavior dynamics and interpersonal negotiation and the scale of individuated autonomy, each, sing each single agent living its life exploring the world, discovering and disclosing new information about the world to one another and via their creations and via their exchanges. Uh, this is where this question of markets comes in. But, you know, coherence mechanisms is not, you know, that category is not just money. That category would also include things like language. That category would also include, in my opinion, systems like mathematics. It would also include, you know, monetary representation of various forms that we've seen through history. Uh, and then you can further break this into you, know, you, know, you can further break that category of coherence mechanisms into uh, different subspaces as you know, whether or not the system is of sort of high representative fidelity. Okay, like how hard is that? How hard is it to lie, so to speak, mm -hmm. in that system? How how closely must that system represent reality versus how easy? You know, and that's sort of like intention with this expression expressiveness in a lot of ways. So think of language, we can very easily make up, you know, just using words without enforcement mechanisms in the world, we can make up any sentences we want. Uh, they compile, so to speak, in the brains of other humans. People know what you mean, even if that meaning has no relation to reality, so to speak. Like if I want to say there's a blue elephant in a tutu dancing on Mars right now, <laughs> you know, I can say that. There's no constraint keeping me from saying that. And so that kind of linguistic exploration as a coherence mechanism can allow us to explore a lot of space in terms of hypothetical possibilities, but it's also, it also opens the possibilities of false representations, creating false futures, false realities that we can use to manipulate others. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, things like mathematics is a form of language with extremely tight constraints, where if you're not following the constraints of mathematics, you're not doing mathematics and someone who knows how to do mathematics will call you on it, right? Well, they should call you on it. And you know, you can, you can probably see where I might be going with this in terms of the, the dichotomy between systems like proof of work and systems like proof of stake. So that's a lot of 
space to cover right there, but I just kind of put it out there to see where you might be interested in going or further exploring. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop there. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was great. I mean, it obviously gives us a, a lot of ground to cover, as you said, but I think that there is like a really nice thread to pull on related to kind of cooperation and representation and, and falsity or truth. And I, I think, you know, in, in the Bitcoin space, we, we kind of, some people I know, I mean, refer to Bitcoin as a, a truth machine or, and, you know, you, there, there is kind of this, this integrity to Bitcoin where it is representing the state of the ledger in, in a probabilistically uncorruptible manner. And so I guess it, it might be good to kind of tease out, you know, what is, what is, I guess, you know, in terms of language, like you have to be able to trust that somebody is giving you correct information. I mean, you know, in, in Bitcoin, there's obviously the, the adage of don't trust verify. And so, you know, we, we obviously talk about money as being a way to, to scale social interactions beyond the Dunbar number and kind of Bitcoin as a, a trust minimized money. And so I'd be curious, like how, how that, that lands for you. And, you know, assuming you agree that Bitcoin enables a greater trust, a greater integrity of the, the communication between individuals, you know, how, how important is that for, for creating a, a coherent, a co coherent whole, I guess, an emergent cooperation or an emergent economy between people. I guess that, that was a bit of a, a mouthful there, but yeah, I guess what, what do you see as the relationship between, between money and, and trust? Introducing the Gatekeepers Issue, the Q1 2023 print release from Bitcoin Magazine. The winter editorial serves as both a reminder of the sacrifice whistleblowers have made in the pursuit of truth and the call to arms for a new generation. Order it now from BitcoinMagazine.com. There's a thin line between curation and censorship. There is an even thinner line between moderation and constitutional violation. The Gatekeepers issue explores the liminal space between these nuances, painting the fences worthy of demolition and those deserving respect. Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Subscribe today for exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Don't miss out on this piece of Bitcoin history. Subscribe now at store.bitcoinmagazine.com. Bitcoiners, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. So what are you waiting for? Don't delay. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com and embark on a path towards Bitcoin mastery. Get ready to seize every opportunity in the market with Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. Yes. Yeah, so let's, let's begin that comparison with the, the side of trust. I think, you know, we, we tend to use words without fully unpacking what they mean in terms of behavior. So I'd like to take a second to just do that with the word trust here. I mean, you know, when we reflect on what the word trust actually means, you know, what it would mean for someone, for example, to be worthy of that trust or trustworthy, you know, what we're talking about oftentimes, if not all the time is the capacity to, if we have multiple people who are exchanging information, we're talking about the capacity to essentially use the information provided by others as a proxy map of the world, so to speak, of past, present, and desired futures. So, you know, an example I like to use is, you know, if, if, 
if I were unable to leave my home and, you know, you and I were friends and I needed some groceries and I said, you know, I communicate to you that, you know, I'm actually in this position where I can't actually do this for myself. Can I give you some money so that you can do this thing for me? And then, you know, come back after some period of time and actually have executed on that task that, that we had coordinated around. And you actually brought me my groceries and I could actually eat and not starve. The interesting thing about that is it requires a lot of different sequentially coordinated actions on each of our parts, as well as the ability for you, you know, let's say you come over, I give you that money, you go back out into the world, you have this option of either you're closing that loop that you established as a possible future with me. Like, you know, the reason I gave you the money was predicated on this potential future coming into existence where you actually brought the groceries back. But that's not necessarily guaranteed by anything except for this concept of trust, this bond, this reciprocity, you know, and that reciprocity, there are a number of other factors that that depends on. But fundamentally, you know, I think that you're probably more likely than not the kind of person that will actually go out into the world, will not be tempted by something else, will not use my vulnerability to exploit me. You'll come back and actually close that loop that will strengthen our bond, that will verify to both you and I that our models of one another are actually uh, you know, more correct than incorrect, at least. And then we can continue to play this game. And you can imagine that you know, as we do this as a society, you know, we, we gain quite a bit from being able to, if we can trust others, we gain quite a bit from being able to take advantage of all of the aggregate maps that they hold in their heads, as opposed to having to have all of that information within our own mind or having to have access or gone to all those places or had all those experiences because you know, we simply don't have the time energy available to us in our lifetime to do that. So you know, there's this massive advantage to trust. That being said, as soon as you create a high trust environment, and this is where this sort of biological analog comes in as well, as soon as you create a high trust environment, as soon as you bring a bunch of resources to the table that are not well defended, so to speak, you make yourself vulnerable to exploitation. And so it's interesting because it's a double-edged sword. The more you have a high trust society, the more you increase the incentives for you know, parasitism to emerge within that parasitism and corruption, you know, what we might call things like capture, what we might use an archetypal, you know, the archetypal example of which might be something like the way in which you know, the Federal Reserve you know, fabricates fiat currency and then the Cantillon effects that flow from that, right, in terms of the ability for those who are closest to that disbursement mechanism to benefit most from the inflationary gradient that is generated by that whole system, right? Like this is the kind of thing that can emerge when people trust, you know, for good reason, initially, those members in authority who were given a responsibility to, to essentially provide a service that made everybody better off. But over time, it degenerates because of the fact that you know, humans being what we are, at least somebody will begin to play that game. And then the game theory sort of dictates once someone begins to play that game of, of parasitism, the people around them will notice that they're benefiting from that and playing that game and will themselves begin to slowly shift more towards that parasitic mode of being. Um, and as that happens, and as more and more people essentially become parasitic on the trust, that entire map, that extended map that we all stitch together together dissolves and we can no longer use it. Right. And that creates a whole set of side effects. It makes a whole set of economic behaviors intractable or implausible. And so, you know, when we get to systems like Bitcoin that actually say, 
you know, I, I don't love the word trustless because I think we're actually more encoding that fundamental capacity into a lower level operating system so that we can have, so that higher orders of trust can reemerge again. But what we're doing fundamentally is dramatically increasing the cost of destroying that map because within the world of Bitcoin, that map is encoded via mechanisms that are extremely expensive to tamper with. And so therefore, we're actually sort of reifying this map of past, present, and possible futures along, you know, within this mechanism that was, you know, called a blockchain. And we are building this structure in a way that it's no longer subject to easy manipulation by a centralized authority simply because people aren't watching or those, you know, that centralized authority like the Federal Reserve isn't fully accountable. So it's much more difficult to, to play that. So, you know, that's a high level analysis of sort of how I see those as related. I'm happy to go any direction from there. Yeah, totally. And, and like when I hear you talking about this idea of, you know, to trust or to, I guess, to abuse that trust, I think of kind of the, the tragedy of the commons where people can either cooperate or defect from an agreement to protect that commons. And this is an idea I've been trying to tease out a little bit in my mind and, and not exactly sure how correct it is. But, you know, coming from an environmental background, like the tragedy of the commons is a, is a fundamental environmental problem, that collective action problem that we haven't really seen seem to be able to, to get around. And uh, when I look at Bitcoin, it seems as though the benefit of cooperation outweighs, you know, the benefit of, of defection, the benefit of, of dilution. You know, if you, you, you know, fork off Bitcoin and, and, you know, try to reallocate wealth to yourself, you know, that's, that's not going to go very well for you. So, so the incentive is for, for people to cooperate and to, I guess, maintain the commons, which is, I suppose, you know, the, the integrity of the money, you know, conversely, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is is operating in a system where they, they benefit from defection and they benefit from abusing the trust that people have placed in them. And so I, I think like when I see Bitcoin, I think of it as like this way of, I, I guess you, you said you may take issue with kind of this this depiction of Bitcoin as like a, a trustless or a trustless mechanism. But I, I guess to simplify things, like I see it as a way of, you know, increasing our ability to cooperate. And as you said, there are these, these kind of non, I guess you, you could say like nonlinear returns that we get when we're able to operate at scale collectively. And I, I think that's just such, such a fascinating thing. To unpack. Um, so I guess in terms of like the tragedy of the commons, like how, how does that land with you? And I'm happy to, to move on, you know, elsewhere in the conversation, if, if you don't have much to say there, but just kind of wanted to put out there. Yeah, that's definitely relevant. You know, the tragedy of the commons. It's an interesting, I mean, the history of that entire expression and, and research around it is kind of fascinating in terms of you know, the assumptions that were initially made with respect to detection and degradation, not all of which actually checked out in terms of the initial initial studies, in terms of the, the sort of like small holding farmlands that were initially researched. But, you know, the, the tragedy of the commons, I mean, the, the principles hold in certain conditions, and those conditions are something like you know, when you actually have a commons that becomes sufficiently large or diffuse so that there can't easily be a community that through its own internal coordination is able to regulate and defend that commons or, you know, through, through its own capacity. Another thing is its own capacity to observe what's going on in that space, right? So it's very different to talk about something like a small village trying to understand and, and regulate its collective usage of a of a nearby pond or stream 
where someone's always going to be able to see that space than it is to talk about something like you know, global CO2 emissions, where the ability to actually see or monitor the externalities of a bunch of different entities with many different, often conflicting incentives, and whether or not they're actually complying with the, you know, the, the, complying with the agreements that they've made and whether those agreements are even about what they say they're about. That's a very different and much more complex domain where you don't expect collective agreement and collective management alone through some sort of cultural mechanism to actually work. So fundamentally, there's this, there's this, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the commons is more likely to occur in systems that are diffuse than at high scale. And so Bitcoin is interesting in the sense that, you know, one of the things I was talking about was visibility and in a centralized authority oriented system, visibility plus centralized authority is kind of like tyranny, right? If you're, if you're relying on a central authority to monitor and enforce the regulation around the commons, that's fundamentally an authoritarian mechanism. The, the brilliant thing about something like Bitcoin is that it fundamentally kind of skirts around that issue by having a system that bootstrapped itself with incentives for positive cooperation and contribution, while also having a form of transparency and integrity that required no centralized authority. And therefore, you know, I, I agree in many ways with you that, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't call it trustless, so to speak, but I think that the capacity for, because you don't have to worry about trust at the infrastructural level, uh, because the incentives themselves and the ability for those who are incentivized by the system to keep an eye on every part of that system, and then essentially navigate away or move away from nodes that are essentially trying to attack that system itself, or anyone who might be attempting to divert the incentives of that system by you know, changing the code itself through forking mechanisms or whatnot. The ability of all of that to happen sort of autonomously through its transparency and the local incentives that were bootstrapped from the beginning, you know, that's an extremely powerful combination. And it allows you to have that kind of visibility and scale without the centralized authority and the tyranny that comes along with it. So as a, I mean, fundamentally novel innovation, I'm sure many in the community are quite aware of many of those aspects, but you know, it's, it's, it's a powerful, powerful game theoretic mechanism that doesn't seem to have ever existed previously. So yeah, definitely worthy of our interest and attention and energy. Yeah, and I, I think energy is something I, I'd love to get into a little bit more uh, shortly. I mean, obviously, we talk about Bitcoin and proof of work, the use of energy to maintain the integrity of the ledger, and you know that differs from proof of stake. And I think there's some, some really interesting things we can uh, unentangle there. But I guess before we do that, I kind of I want to set the stage a little bit for understanding Bitcoin through the lens of biology. And I know you, looking through Twitter, I've seen you've referred to Bitcoin as more organism-like than material-like. And we've had Brandon Quidham on the podcast, kind of coin as the mycelium of money. And, you know, the crux of, you know, conceiving of Bitcoin as an organism is that it's exploiting, you know, energy that's available in its environment to maintain its internal integrity. And, and you see, you know, that same mechanism happening within biological organisms. Um, and so the parallels there are, are pretty mind-blowing in my opinion. Um, and so, gosh, how do I, how do I tie this all, all together? I guess, we could take it one of two ways. First of all, we'd just be curious to hear how, how that lands with you and, it, you know, if that, that metaphor, you know, does, does hold true and, and if so, you know, to what extent. But also I'd love to just kind of tease out, you know, the, the free energy principle in terms of like error correction. And I think that's like one of something that, you know, Jeff Booth talks about. Are, are, you, are you familiar with Jeff Booth's work on, on the price of tomorrow, Matt? Loosely, but I, I, haven't, I haven't fully 
gone into that. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, what I'm just trying to pull from there is that he, he focuses on this idea of error correction as being mm-hmm. fundamentally, you know, what we're doing in an economy and, and what individuals are doing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess, first of all, like, you know, you know, when you're, you're thinking of Bitcoin as, I guess when I think of Bitcoin, I think of uh, there is this objective function that it has, and it is kind of this homeostat where it is trying to converge upon 21 million coins released by the year 2140, give or take, you know, a running error of those. That does, it approaches 21 million to be clear, but I, I guess, you know, does, how, how true does that metaphor of Bitcoin as, as a life form hold for you? And I think that might give us an interesting jumping off point of, of thinking as uh, uh, Bitcoin as like a, a meta organism, or, or perhaps that would be, you know, more at the scale of, of the economy that, that emerges from it. But yeah, I would be curious your thoughts on, on understanding Bitcoin as a life form. Definitely. I think that, so with, with respect to life or, or, you know, what we, the process we call life, you know, first of all, you know, it should be, should be known or should be thought of as a fundamentally a process, right? And there's this question of, you know, what that process is doing. At the very broadest scale, what that process is doing is essentially finding ways of persisting metabolic order in the face of entropic tendencies in the world, right? It's, it's a set of relations, you know, every, every biological entity in the world, every, every metabolism is fundamentally finding a way to tap into some energy gradient in order to persist its own local structure, its own local order to keep its own process of its own life processes online. For some period of time until it can reproduce and then, you know, pass on. So fundamentally, this process, you know, the question of how much like this process Bitcoin is, I think there are certain parts of this process that it is very much like. And there are certain, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, so for example, you, you would notice that there are certain kinds of mechanisms in each life form that have the property that they are most regularly exposed to the energy gradient, the external energy gradient. So for a tree uh, that is you know, a synthetic process you know, that's occurring in these leaves and packaging up sugars, sending sugars to the root system, and then you know, exchanging those sugars essentially with the mycelial network around it, which is actually, interestingly enough, there are many metaphors for Bitcoin. One of which I disagree with most is that it's like the mycelial network, because I actually think it's quite the opposite in the sense that it's, it's far more like the trees that interact with the mycelial network by tapping into the energy gradient of the sun, providing and packaging up regularly sugars, and then using that as a incentive mechanism to coordinate much more complex yet non-deterministic behavior in the mycelial structures around them. I would actually compare mycelial networks far more towards a proof of stake type of networks in terms of their highly open exploratory and, and non-predict, you know, much more entropic nature, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I'm good at covering a lot of good at covering a lot of exploratory ground, but not great at being highly dependable in terms of their ability to act as a behavioral attractor around which many other life forms can depend. Mm-hmm. Unlike trees, which which actually very much are <laughs> highly dependable, relatively fixed generators of a novel gradient from an, an energy gradient like the sun, it, you know, patch it, it transforms the sun gradient into a sugar gradient in much the same way that, you know, Bitcoin essentially fuses computation and energy into a monetary gradient, which is essentially a, a symbolic or representational gradient that taps into what you might call human potential energy, right? The, the, the ability to essentially store wealth such that we can arbitrage human attention and action and work across time and space 
So you know, I think that that kind of a mechanism, you know, that that, that tree like that photosynthetic mechanism is also very sim- similar to you know, you'll see a very similar process occur at the level of you know at the level of the, the mitochondria, right? The mitochondria was once an independent form of cell. That cell essentially ended up inside of another, and at that point, it was actually able to act as a kind of energetic engine. And what you see at the boundary that enables this whole process of of the, the mitochondrial of the mitochondrial powerhouse, so to speak, is this set of you know this transport chain, this set of this set of proteins that essentially allow the creation of a of a proton pump, which is another stable gradient. And that stable gradient that it generates allows for cells to simultaneously essentially have batteries and to become communications networks. And so you know, these kind of mechanisms, there, there are a number of other examples, not just in, in biology, but also in, in human society. Like I, I gave in a conversation that I was having with Jordan Hall, I gave the example of a water wheel at a higher level of organizational complexity where you can take a water wheel. That water wheel is a, is a very deterministic mechanism that you put in contact with the energy gradient, namely a river or a stream, you transform linear momentum of the water into rotational or angular momentum of, of, a, of an axle. And then that's an interchangeable energy mechanism that enables a whole new set of behaviors around that water wheel. And so this pattern of a very, of a novel function coming into existence, that's highly regular, highly predictable, and allows for the transformation of one energy gradient into another that is useful to a new set of behaviors or opens up a new domain of exploration, something like an adjacent possible. That is the kind of thing that I would argue Bitcoin is very much like, something that I call a binding closure. And I think that you know, what we are seeing is precisely humanity coming into a space where we, we, we realize many of the parasitic elements of an unbound or fiat currency that had no deterministic relation to an extrinsic reference frame, an extrinsic energy gradient. We, you know, for the first time had computation online. We could actually combine computation and our understanding of energy. Somebody did that. And then the output of that, much like the output of the photosynthetic process is a sugar, the output of, you know, you know, of that process is, you know, actually a monetary unit in exchange for, you know, performing the work required to encode information and help generate, as we were talking about before, that trust encoded, you know, map spatio that can be used for human coordination across space and time. So, so yeah, I mean, I, that mechanism shows up in many biological systems. I wouldn't argue that Bitcoin is like the whole organism. I would argue that it's like that kind of a feature that enables organisms. Yeah, no, re- really well said. And I think that, that, uh, you know, our audience will, will, you know, find that that there's a lot to chew on there, you know, trying to recapitulate, you know, Brandon Quidham's understanding of coin as the mycelium of money. And I think, you know, your analogy of the, the relationship between the tree and the mycelial network is, is super interesting. And I think this might provide a good jumping off point. And you talked about kind of, you know, the, the mode of representation of the money being constrained by the environment in, in which it exists. And I, I think, you know, comparing Bitcoin to proof of stake or, or fiat currency systems could provide a, a nice foil for, for understanding that. And so I guess, first of all, like, you know, what what is the importance of coupling our money to energy? Like, what, why is that a necessary function? And like, why does I believe you kind of call proof of stake as being, a, 
I guess, self-referential, not, not relating to an extrinsic environment. So like what, what is, I guess, could you help us untangle on it, you know, disentangle, like why is, why is that connection between Bitcoin and, you know, the, the, the energetic environment in which it, it exists? Like, why is that, why is that necessary? Like, what would you say to somebody who, who comes to you and says, Hey, like proof of stake is, you know, secure and uses energy therefore, or uses, you know, has no proof of work. Therefore it's a more efficient mode of, of, I guess, maintaining a ledger. Like what, what would you say to somebody who came to you with that kind of objection? Yeah. So for me, I, you know, it's a question of how likely, how likely is, and I think it's, you know, how much evidence do I see around me and, you know, how much evidence do I see in the nature of emergent lice itself pointing to the utility or the need for any given domain of biological evolution or adaptation to have some connection to an, a kind of stabilizing gradient outside of itself, typically an energy gradient outside of itself. You know, if you look at the fundamental, you know, this is going back to the, the, the fundamental question of this life process, being the kind of thing that can persist its own order by tapping into an energy gradient. Yeah, one side effect of that is that you know, there's no such thing as a perfect conversion or a perfectly efficient conversion of energy, right? So like there's always going to be a waste product of that usage of energy to keep a life process, to keep any process going. And that, that sort of waste heat or that sort of entropic output, if you look at the pattern of life's emergence, what you see is an increasingly complex stack of organisms or types of organisms that tend to tap into the so-called you know, entropic or waste products of a previous generation of, of organisms, right? So every, every food chain is like this. Which is like if you go all the way to the bottom of a food chain, you know, at the bottom of, you know, uh, of ocean-based food chains, you'll often find a photosynthesizing microorganisms there, or you know, you'll find the capacity for photosynthesizing you know, plants and, and trees in the terrestrial ecosystems. Like at the, you know, and then everything else sort of loans from there. Obviously there's a, there's a fungal branch, which is a sort of a third branch, but even in that branch, you also see, you know, different energy gradients being tapped into, but nonetheless energy gradients being tapped into. And then the byproduct of that, again, you know, you, you have other entities that come along and tap into that gradient and repeat the process. You get this cyclic nesting process and, and that creates a kind of nested set of multi-scale constraints, right? That keep the whole process from deviating randomly, right? Adaptation, evolution, people don't think too much about the fact that you know, because we're at the tail end of a bunch of evolutionary success, each one of us is the unbroken lineage of reproductive success that goes back you know, billions of years. Uh, we don't think about the fact that that entails a whole lot of death from all of these other experiments that diverged at some point from this stack and didn't make it. And so there's this question of like, how do you actually have some sort of reference frame in terms of what works in terms of how you can simultaneously tap into a stable stack of energy gradients that will provide you with the energy you need to live, but that you can also have some ability to, to navigate. Now that, that, that is contradictory to, or that is very different from like we were saying before, systems that enable you to fundamentally divorce yourself from any of those constraints, right? So 
the idea of, and you know, just one other thing on the previous emergent stack of these highly constrained mechanisms that tap into energy and then produce byproducts that are the, the energy inputs of other things. You know, that that is a that constraint is a space that, or it it, it fundamentally binds and restricts the exploration exploratory capacities of any agent that taps into that gradient. Think of it like, you know, in the human frame of reference, it's like you don't go that far from your sources of food, right? Because you have to eat multiple times a day or you're going to get very hungry. Uh, so if you go into a space that's very far from your normal source of food, especially if you don't have the capacity to, to hunt or grow your own food quickly, you then begin to starve. So like there's a kind of tether to this system that has a, a kind of gravity to it. Now, on the other side of that is the ability to, or the possibility that you might want to untether yourself from that for various periods of time or, or longer periods of time for exploratory purposes. You might want to free yourself. You might be willing to go hungry for a few days to go on a really wonderful hike in the mountains because you think you're going to discover something that you'll be able to bring back and will add value to your life or the lives of others around you. And so you might then be willing to sever your tie from from that constraint space. But yep. there's a difference between small separations from those that fundamental stack of energetic constraints and the desire to completely divorce yourself from it. Because the more you divorce yourself or separate yourself from that entire set of essentially all of the wisdom encoded in all of those constraints, to the extent that you divorce yourself from that, you open up spaces of you know, of, of behavior that's much more likely to self-terminate. And one of those domains is essentially false representation. So to the extent that people can gain local advantage by creating any representation they so choose without constraints, you can explore a lot of territory, perhaps attract a lot of local energy, but because it's divorced from or free from that entire lineage, that entire history of energetic relations that are keeping each other in check, you basically are much more likely to drift into spaces that are not sustainable. And so like, you know, this is where the evolution of the word shitcoins really comes from, is this idea, you know, fundamentally, I mean, think of even like the Cambrian explosion or any kind of radiating event where you get a ton of exploration unconstrained by the, the, the underlying fundamental constraints of all of these systemic gradients that actually have worked over billions of years. If you, if you just go into a different space and say, we don't have to worry about that at all. We can just be 100% efficient or much more efficient than Bitcoin. Let's say we can compute in, you know, compute our own self-referential representations that are only accountable to themselves in a closed system that only require the people in this network to agree. Then we can, you know, if that's a, if that's a, if that's a kind of a, a closed space of collective agreement. It can be somewhat functional in and of itself, but it has a tendency to drift away into very strange spaces, just like a cult would, or just like any kind of you know, self-referential. If people help to delude one another, you know, one of the, there's a reason why you know, cults, one of the first things that they do is separate you from all of your familial relations, separate you from the outside world. They break all your external frames of reference to other constraints that would typically keep you from doing undertaking tasks or, or participating in behaviors that are probably not beneficial to your future selves and probably end in self-termination, right? This is a very similar pattern in the sense that like you can create a very large amount of experimental, if you're, if you're, if you release yourself from those constraints, 
you can experiment with whatever you want. You can be as parasitic as you want. You can say that your technology has any benefits that you wish to say it has, as long as it attracts people to it and is able to generate, you know, short-term benefit for you, you know, namely a pup and dub scheme you can undergo, or you, you can do that. So fundamentally, like there's this, there's this tension between these two types of systems, one of which is extremely beholden to this lineage of unbroken energy bindings across time, space, and evolution. And another is not beholden to that, that explores a ton of space in terms of possible patterns of connectivity or function, but that is almost guaranteed in time to you know, mostly kill itself off. So that's kind of the fundamental dichotomy that, that I tend to see between those two systems from you know, emergent biological terms. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Did that, did that make uh, sense? I think it can be kind of abstract. No, a hundred percent. No, I, what I really latch onto there is you talk about self-termination. And I, when I think of Bitcoin, I think of something that I guess has a much greater temporal scale or temporal possibility, something that won't self-terminate, say, like an inflationary fiat currency. And when I think of that, I think of, you know, okay, this opens up a whole new scale of collective exploration, or, or I guess so just like, I guess, you know, I, I kind of pulling on the work of, of Michael Levin, you know, it, it expands our cognitive capacity through time to such a much larger degree to think that we have, I mean, I guess, you know, if you want to take it to its extreme, you could claim that Bitcoin is something that's built to last forever. I mean, I'm sure you could probably tease it apart and, you know, get a little bit more nitty gritty there. But taking that at face value, I think that there's something very interesting about Bitcoin where it expands our cognitive capacity to think in much, much longer term scenarios. And again, like, you know, alluding to the work of Michael Levin, like with his, his work on cognitive light cones and I think that there there could be something interesting to explore there. It's like, what is what is Bitcoin doing to augment our collective cognitive capacity as opposed to, you know, using a money that, that engenders forms of, of self-termination? And like, that's kind of what I want to try to pick apart is like, in terms of the collective intelligence of the human superorganism, like what, you know, do you do you see any connection there between Bitcoin and our, our ability to, I guess, you know, in, in the parlance of like Carl Friston to maximize self-information or minimize surprise that's kind of like where i want to take this conversation i i don't i don't particularly have like an elegant way of, of of teeing this up for you but i'd be curious like how that that lands for you like in trying to understand like what is the the cognitive capacity of the the collective agent of, of you know humans coming together and cooperating like that do you see a relationship between you know the temporal scale that bitcoin enables and and the kinds of cognitive capacity that that can afford humanity. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely see that. I definitely agree in the sense that because of, you know, with respect to time preference, right, with respect to our ability to actually plan long-term, you know, much of that depends on what we can take for granted in terms of you know, what, what we can expect to remain constant across larger, larger spans of time. This is you know, generally it's, it's, for example, it's very, it's very hard to, it's very hard to criticize someone for not concerning themselves with highly abstract political concepts. If they don't know where their next meal is coming from, right? You have to have a certain degree of stability in your life before you can actually begin expanding the temporal horizon of concern 
right? This is also, this directly relates to active inference as well, because fundamentally when you're trying to understand this tension between whether you should sort of stick with a particular model or perhaps undergo some sort of risk of greater uncertainty in the short term to gain a, a much greater insight into the world in the long term, there, there's always this question of how likely, how likely is that? How likely are you to actually gain something through that short-term sacrifice? And you know, I think that's why you know, Bitcoin is, is quite interesting in this respect, because you know, the longer that it has actually been around and the, the more that it has demonstrated itself capable of becoming increasingly less volatile in a world that is increasingly more chaotic and more volatile, the more it offers that kind of a coordinative affordance to humanity in the sense that every piece of fragmented informational representation that might be useful in its own little niche around the world can in theory leverage the, the Bitcoin blockchain as long as they're able to afford it to you know, coordinate. You know, personally, this is, this is not just the monetary usage. I very much see a lot of what's coming online right now with respect to ordinals, et cetera, as the ability to leverage Bitcoin as what you might consider something like a, a meta-centralizing attractor. So it is, it, it, it is decentralized with reference to the level of nation-state organization, right? It transcends that and goes outside of that. But with respect to you know, humanity itself and all the possible modes of organization that we might in theory use in all of our different paths of exploration in you know, either this planet or others, we also need a way of coordinating that. And so with respect to that wider array of possibilities, you know, the, the, the affordances that make Bitcoin as stable as it is, make it an ideal candidate for stable encodings that enable that kind of much larger scale and much more complex coordination across time. So I think fundamentally, this is one of the reasons why I look at Bitcoin as a as a, as a low time preference attractor that will coexist or that has come into existence in opposition to the high time preference attractors that we have embodied in the, the sort of regime of nation state, Westphalian state, fiat, you know, fiat currency coordination based systems, which have themselves tried to act as that fundamentally, you know, the coordination clearinghouse for humanity up to this point. But there are many downsides that everyone is probably quite aware of when it comes to putting specific humans in control of the actual mechanisms by which that global coordination is supposed to, to occur, right? The, the temptation to abuse that, abuse those mechanisms for personal gain just becomes so high that it's, it's, it's almost irrefusable for any human, any mortal. And so I think fundamentally, that's why you, know, you see something. I, I don't see anything else that exists in the world that fundamentally has the capacity to, regardless of its network topology, so to speak, the topology can change depending on maybe which country tries to ban Bitcoin or you know, even, <laughs> I mean, the ability to fully, the ability to fully kill Bitcoin, you know, the amount of totalitarian force required to extinguish it completely. I mean, it's almost unthinkable. And even then, the idea still exists, right? And so it's, it's, if, if that were to happen, the effort in terms of sustaining the fact that no one will ever be able to create something analogous again is something that 
is it seems unlikely. So like even in the most unlikely scenario, it's unlikely that can even be persisted over time. And in the likelihood of that most unlikely scenario seems extremely low as well. And so, you know, from from my perspective, from where I'm sitting, you know, Bitcoin does seem like leading candidate for humanity's sort of large scale coordination capacity. You know, I think that will be the you know it will have plenty of monetary value. It is very good at storing value, but I think fundamentally also for sort of coordinative encodings and that you can depend on, I think it's going to be the the, the tool of choice. Yeah, I I mean, thank you for that. That was that was incredibly eloquent. And one thing I want to try and tease out a little bit now is again the relationship between Bitcoin time and energy. And you know, this was in the notes, but feel free to you know pass on this question if you think it's a little bit outside of your your area of expertise. But I you know we talk about Bitcoin as time, like that's something Gigi has popularized. Bitcoin as a a decentralized time stamping mechanism. And I think that there's such an interesting connection between time and energy. And as far as I know, you know the more accurate a clock, the more energy it needs to use. And in the context of proof of work, as well as the maximum entropy principle, I think that that's a really fascinating avenue to go down. Like, does, you know, Bitcoin align with the maximum entropy principle? Does it allow, does it, does it maximize the amount of entropy that society or, or or our economy as a whole can can generate. And, you know, I think that that might highlight as well, like why this decentralized time stamping server needs to use energy as well, like in kind of a a way to kind of push back on on the notion of proof of stake as being sufficient. So I'd be curious if if that how that lands with you at all, like if there's anything we can unpack there as far as timekeeping, energy use and, and at the maximum entropy principle. And as far as I know, like that maximum entropy principle is kind of you know, deeply related to the free energy principle. It's, I guess this is a bit outside of my, my domain of expertise or explication, but I think that those two are, are, you know, deeply connected. So would be curious if you have any thoughts on, on that as well. I know yeah, we're getting I, towards the end of how much time we had scheduled here. I'm happy to keep ripping, but want to be respectful of if you have any other obligations as well. Yeah, I kept I kept my schedule clear for for a little while longer here, so happy to keep talking about it. I also got started a little bit late because of the technical difficulties. So, <laughs> so yeah, let's keep. And I also I also really enjoy this particular topic. So yeah, let's keep going. Awesome, oh, man. It's hard to figure out exactly where to start because there these particular topics are they sort of unspool into some very they. Insp- they unpack into places that we fundamentally don't have a very good grip on you know, as, as a species in terms of our scientific understanding. For example, you know, it's the, if you actually really keep pushing in terms of the question of what is energy at the fundamental level, we don't actually know, right? We have some good equations that help us track the sort of analytic relations that are measurable in the world that we call energy, the ability to sort of transform or, 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 or translate the capacity to, to do work from system to system across various substrates you know, we call this energy you know, this potential for change right it's this very abstract concept but also as we've noted you know it's a universal concept and it is it's quite measurable and it, you know we, we certainly can get a grip on its behavior even if we can't necessarily point to something if, even if we can't directly point to its essence but it's, it's a, it is a fundamental or it seems to be a fundamental concept but you know energy and time at least through certain perspectives, certain equations, so something called Noether's theorem. I mean, Noether was a, a mathematician who basically showed that there are these relations between 
between symmetries of action and conservation of properties. And so in the domain of energy, and that's the, 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 the symmetry is, is a time symmetry, meaning that fundamentally you know, conservation of energy implies that it doesn't necessarily matter when in time the process happens. Of course, you know, if to the sort of naive mind, or just like, if you just think colloquially about it, it's like, oh, if I perform an experiment on how much it rains today and tomorrow, like that obviously depends on time, but the deeper understanding of this symmetry I'm talking about is, is kind of what actually enables you to even have a, that enables that experiment to be meaningful at all, right? The fact that there are that energy across the entire system of concern, right? Is evolving in time in a way such that all of these different changes are canceling each other out. And the overall potential for change is being conserved. But that entails or that requires this, this, this somewhat arbitrary concept of a boundary, right? Like when you're talking about a system of concern thermodynamically, you have to specify your boundary conditions. And the interesting question about you know, boundary conditions brings us into this space of, you know, when we're talking about something like maximum entropy, what you're talking about is another way of thinking about that, or that is another way of describing kind of like what we were talking about as what life does, because fundamentally maximization of global entropy can be tied into this idea of the maximization max or the creation of local order, because to the extent that you're trying to produce local order in some location within this system, that production, that usage of energy to produce local order is dissipating entropy, right? And so the more order you're generating, the more entropy locally, the more entropy you're producing globally, fundamentally. And so you know, the, 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 that sort of gives you this, you know, in the most simple sense, if you were to reduce the entire metabolism of planet Earth to a, a very simple boundary condition, you, know, you have the inputs, uh, the energetic inputs coming in largely from our sun. I will ignore other sort of relatively trivial energy inputs compared to that. Uh, and then you have everything going on inside of that system, all of the order being produced, all of the order being dissipated, but you know, the amount of energy, uh, the, amount of en the amount of entropy that is being generated there is going to contribute to the energy or entropy heat out and en entropy outside of that equation uh, in terms of like radiation, heat radiation coming off of that planet. Some of which is captured by our atmosphere, and you know, to to some extent, therefore, you know, this question of whether or not we're warming up the planet is also a question of like, are we creating additional order on net of and beyond what existed before us, uh, and are we dissipating that effectively outside the atmosphere? Like, there's nothing in theory that's preventing us from just venting our entropy out into space, which would basically entirely avoid many of the issues with venting it into our atmosphere. But uh, this is sort of the frame of reference that we're talking about. We're talking about like, what does it mean to maximize entropy and why is that related to life or order or time? And so sort of like built up from the bottom there in terms of you know, all the way from this time energy symmetry and its relationship to order and entropy, uh, all the way up through you know, life processes and their involvement in this. The question of time is also interesting from the perspective of, you know, when you talk about clocks, Clocks are something that's fascinating because, you know, I don't know, this is a very deep debate and it's certainly not a solved matter. I'm tempted not to believe that time is a fundamental concept 
in, well, it's a fundamental concept, but it's not a thing in and of itself. I don't, I, I think it's more of a emergent byproduct of that production of order in the face of entropy process, right? Like to our, to the degree we mm. understand, to the degree we understand physics, the equations of physics seem reversible in time, right? Doesn't necessarily matter which direction we go, but in terms of all ordered systems, you know, the probability of things happening in a, a way from you know, all of our perceptions are evolved and attuned to the fact that within the, with, from, with, from the view within the ordered part of this reality, we don't expect glasses to unbreak once they are dropped, right? We expect them, if they're dropped, to break, to move into that state of disorder. We expect, you know, sequences of causality to tend to progress in one direction that is in accordance with the way that they tend to progress causally all around us at many scales consistently for you know, the entire evolution of our species, which is why if we were to see things start happening backwards all around us, we would be very, very surprised. And it would tell us, you know, in terms of information, in terms of surprisal, it would tell us that something very fundamental is changing about our world, but that, that's not happening, right? And it's not happening because there's a massive amount of inertia in at the universal scale involved in this process of, you know, whatever this life process, whatever these ordered elements of the universe are, and they don't have to be life processes entirely. There are other forms of local order that dissipate, that dissipate, that take in energy and dissipate as, as entropy, that maximize entropy. Like whirlpools are a good example. A Rayleigh Bernard cells, like if you heat up oil in a pan and you heat it up past a certain threshold, underneath of a certain threshold, it'll just bubble. But if you go past that threshold, it actually can't sufficiently dissipate enough entropy heat so that it'll actually take on a hexagonal form that's more efficient. Basically, this is why convection cells also form, also happens in our atmosphere, also happens in cooling lava, right? Like there are all these different ways, all these different, all these different patterns of behavior that release entropy when you intensify the flux of energy through a particular set of constraints. And so when we talk about something like where Bitcoin comes in and Bitcoin's relationship time, you know, you can make the case, like Gigi's essays, and, and you can make the case that the, the constraints imposed by Bitcoin are because, especially because they follow from and are bound deeply to the energetic gradients and constraints of our external reference frame, that they recapitulate the tendencies locally in a way that's more sort of graspable or usable in our own social systems. So introducing that sort of social arrow of time into or introducing a kind of coordinative arrow of time that is accessible through a representational system and schema like Bitcoin is, you could argue, a recapitulation of the same kind of ordering process in an in, in ordering process that locally produces order in its global production of entropy. And the tendency of that kind of a thing to produce an asymmetry of flow and tendencies of systems to move in one direction and not another, despite the fact that that doesn't show up in the, the fundamental constraints of the, of the physics that we know. So yeah, I'm happy to go, I'm happy to unpack any part of that more. If you want to get like even more detail, I just don't want to, you know, we could get out, we could geek out on that for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I will say I'm definitely going to get a re-listen to this. I mean, part of, you know, the exercise of doing these spaces called Cosmic Bitcoin is just to really spark my curiosity and to spark the curiosity of the audience to give them a bunch of new rabbit holes to go down. And I think 
I think you've done an excellent job of that, um, giving people so many new things to consider. And, and I guess well, one thing I'd like to get your take on in the context of what you just said is, you know, Michael Saylor often says that Bitcoin is thermodynamically sound. And I think that it, it relates deeply to what you just talked about with the Nova theorem and kind of, the, you know, it, it implies a conservation of energy. And yet at the same time, like we see Bitcoin as, and that also implies, I guess, time translation symmetry as you said, in that conservation. Yet at the same time, Bitcoin is something that is, as far as I can tell, this may be incorrect, but is time stand translation asymmetric, where if you play, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain forward and in reverse, you will see that it is growing when you play it forward. And then when you rewind that, it is, you know, shrinking. And so there is this asymmetry when you play it, you know, forward and, and, and in reverse as well. Yet it also has um, you know, this conservation of, of, of the 21 million, like as a, is a constant. So you may have, you know, articulated, you know, in your previous statement, like the connection between those two things, but I guess I would just be curious, you know, when you hear Michael Saylor say something like that, like how, how does that strike you? And then I also just think it's interesting that there is conservation, yet there's also a form of, of asymmetry. And like, you know, when we think of, of light, there's also the fact that Bitcoin is becoming increasingly irreversible and you know, increasingly it's increasingly improbable that Bitcoin blockchain is reversed. I mean, so I think that that pairs really well with for this, you know, in the context of active matter, trying to measure the irreversibility of, you know, coarse grained systems. So I know that was a bit of a word salad, so I apologize, but I guess, yeah. What, no, what, I'm, what I'm with your... you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, when you, when you hear Michael Saylor say that, is he invoking the Notre theorem? And, you know, how do you, how does that land? Well, you know, <laughs> there are a certain amount of skills that I have in this world and mind reading is not amongst them. So I, I can't, I can't speak to, to what he means by it, right? Specifically, obviously he's a controversial figure. I think that he seems like a smart guy. He seems also to be, you know, very good at marketing. I think that he, you know, when he says things, he might very well mean the same things that I mean or not. So I, I will, with that caveat, I guess I will say that if like, if what he means when he puts that idea out there is, is what I would mean, if you were to ask me to say why, you know, to, why I would hypothetically make an argument for that, right? Like who knows, but like, let's try it. So if I were to make an argument for this fundamental sort of conservation, I think one of the things that you have to like, it's a little hard to wrap your head around at first. But that you would have to that you'd have to wrap your head around before this makes sense is the idea that like let's say that you do take that twenty one million boundary as the the conserved quantity right the conserved quantity meaning that like that's an absolute quantity meaning that 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 has to essentially be bound up in this in the fundamental boundary condition that we're talking about well the thing about Bitcoin here is that there's a release mechanism associated with that twenty one million therefore there's a fundamental durational process going on that 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 constrains the degree to which anyone can even interact with that full boundary condition of the 21 million that boundary condition is not in play directly until it is reached and, and bitcoin is essentially all the bitcoin is fully released it is in play implicitly insofar mm -hmm. as agents insofar as agents who are aware of the way that the mechanism unfolds and its constraints its mechanics can if that if those mechanics are predictable and seem to actually play out the way that they were designed to play out, which seems to be the case so far, 
one can begin to play that forward in time and, and make various predictions about you know the future of this system at the mechanism level and how that will shape the behavior of human systems around it. Because if it is more regular than other human systems around it, if it is more dependable than other human systems around it, you know, most principles of emergence would tell us that the the other transient systems around it would begin to orbit this attractor. That's a little bit of a digression, but fundamentally the conservation question, it requires us to understand that this happens over what we think of as time. We tend to think of time as something that's not always present. You know, a future period of time is in the future, but you know, it's actually from a physics perspective, definitely not unheard of, quite common to think of or posit things like, okay, you have a four dimensional chunk of space time, right? That whole block of space time of three dimensions extruded across time, you can hypothesize that that exists right now. It all exists. We're just constrained because we have to move through it. So in theory, you could say that creating something like a 21 million boundary and a near deterministic process by which that boundary condition is approached brings into existence a kind of multidimensional system plus the dimension of time. So I'm not going like to necessarily speculate on whatever dimension the Bitcoin system is, but whatever it is, it would also require the extra dimension of sort of unfolding across time. And that whole, that whole Bitcoin time volume would be the analog, the systemic analog to the four-dimensional space-time in which thermodynamics plays out. So if I were to, I guess, speculate on what that means, if that's what he means, I don't know. But if you were to ask me why that might be the case, that's that's what I might speculate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for that. I mean, I, I appreciate you taking that on. And again, not a mind reader, or at least as far as I know you're not, but definitely appreciate you taking that on. And then I guess to kind of shift the conversation a little bit. One thing I, I want to kind of pick on is, you know, I listened to your conversation with Jim Rutt, found it absolutely fascinating, really, really great debate. And I recommend everyone in the audience check that out. I, I found it incredibly informative. If you just go to YouTube and type in Matthew Pierkowski and Jim Rutt, it should, should, should arise. But one thing that Jim, I guess, when he was kind of um, trying to critique Bitcoin is he, is he said, you know, Bitcoin is fundamentally antisocial in that, you know, people will be hoarding their money and kind of, you know, sequestering themselves away. And, and he sees that as kind of a, a negative, a knock on Bitcoin. And I kind of wanted to turn that on its head. And I think this might actually relate to the free energy principle and, and ideas around individuation and, and notions of self in that I think Bitcoin is almost, you know, it's an inherently pro-social network in that people recognize the individual agency in the context of the collective where you know, the property or the boundaries of the individual can't transgress upon. I mean, I think it almost, you could, you know, anthropomorphize this as like a form of mutual respect. And so I think, I guess that would be my, my counter to Jim Rutt, where it's like, you know, you, you aren't going to, I guess, dilute those people of the network for the, the gain of, of somebody who has control over, over that network itself. So I guess I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of, you know, discuss, you know, your response to, to Jim's claim of, of Bitcoiners being antisocial. I mean, there's obviously all the memes of, you know, Bitcoiners are, are you know, on the, they're on the, like the dark triad or, or, you know, <laughs> psychopaths or whatever. And I, I actually, I found it to be, you know, it's the inverse where it's, it, it recognizes the agency of individuals. And there's also kind of, I guess, an honesty in the network in terms of its fidelity of, of, of 
you know, communicating true information. And so I guess I would just be curious, like, you know, what, what is your, your perspective on that? And, you know, again, if it, uh, this is something, you know, you don't feel is, is relevant or that you'd like to comment on, happy to, to move on to, to something else. Yeah, I'd like to comment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a few things. I think, well, the dark, dark tetrad with the triad plus sadism. I mean, I think some of that is necessary to any sustainable social system. I, I think a little bit of it goes a long way. But I think that if if those personality tendencies and those elements of you know, it's been conserved, those elements of our personalities have been conserved across time for a reason, even though the way that they manifest in the short term can be highly pathological and they can go astray very easily. But, you know, if they are harnessed, I think if they are harnessed to a higher ideal. I mean, you know, those tendencies, you know, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, sadism, if those are harnessed in, in small degrees to a higher goal, they are, they are quite useful property. And so I don't, I don't take seriously casual critiques that just essentially try to throw that out there as a smear. I do think that you can, they can go too far, right? And so for example, I mean, you might, if you were to anthropomorphize aspects of our immune system, you could call, you know, we call killer T cells, killer T cells, not because they're you know, busy you know, participating in reciprocal altruism in the body, right? But they, they find targets that are, that, are, that are threats, perceived as threats to the host and they destroy them. So, so there's precedent, there's need. That being said, the immune system can go too far if it starts, if it begins to lack the discernment between, between host and invader, let's say, you know, that's an autoimmune disorder. And so, so it can go too far. And that, that's definitely possible. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, I've definitely seen it happen, I think, at the extreme and at the extremes of, of the Bitcoin community. But I think that in general, a lot of, a lot of the, I've also seen very healthy applications of those tendencies. So that out of the way, pro-social versus anti-social as a mechanism itself. I mean, I, I fundamentally think that if you look at life, <laughs> if you look at the fact that many different strategies have emerged within the, the, the evolutionary ramifications of time and explored many possible ways of being in a constrained environment, right? Like, like we were talking about, if we, if we kind of, if we hold to these ideas of, of sort of conservation of energy, let's say uh, we had a concert, like a, a conserved, limited, somewhat deterministic platform in which all of life had to evolve and emerge. And some of those strategies were not purely selfish, right? And humanity is actually a very interesting example of a species that found patterns of cooperation and coordination, even amongst its distant, distant, distant cousins, right? And by that, I mean people that you don't even consider typically your relatives, despite the fact that we are all you know, cousins, many removed. We found ways where even if the genetic relations were extremely distant to devalue in others through their through the way that they show up in a particular social context, be that providing a service or you know, having a capacity to behave in a particular way with let's say good leadership or trustworthiness or you know what we call virtues, right? And so all of this was quite the unusual and unlikely regime of cooperative enabling behavior that emerged inside the constraints of a very rigid, rigidly determined set of physical 
relations. And so there's no inherent reason why finitude has to give rise to antisocial behavior. We ourselves are a good example of the fact that if within a finite set of constraints, you can find useful modes of cooperation, they are actually an extremely successful strategy for adaptation and evolution. And so I would, I would, you know, I would posit the exact opposite, where to the extent that Bitcoin enables us to extend our time horizons, extend our ability to interact with one another via low time preference frames of reference, as opposed to high time preference frames of reference, we will behave less in the way of, you know, unintelligent, asocial species, you know, crabs in a bucket, scrambling for whatever we can get in the short term and, and return to paradigms where we can actually have you know, a better ability to more predictably coordinate with one another over the long term, which actually brings out the better angels of human nature, I would argue, as opposed to the, the worse angels of human nature. And mm -hmm. so you know, I think that systems that you know, many monetary systems have proposed this idea of fundamentally baking in mechanisms of, of degeneration into the currency. And obviously central banking, digital currencies are, are going to go that way to the extent where even, you know, China is already going that way. And that sort of false capacity, that, that ability to basically manipulate the fidelity and the, the, the durability of these representations across time simultaneously brings out, I would argue, the worst in human nature at the interpersonal level, but also at the sort of centralized authoritarian and tyr you know, tyranny level. And I think that to the extent that people are not seeing that, they're a little bit too zoomed into the, to the mechanisms. Uh, they're, they're just not seeing the force of the trees fundamentally, right? <clears throat> Yeah, and and when when you're saying that, I mean, I'm I, I caught a little bit of your interview with Jordan Peterson. I think it was maybe four or five years ago, and I think about like Jordan has talked a little bit about you know like finite versus infinite games, and kind of like you know how what would your strategy be if you knew you were going to keep playing with somebody? And I think he looks at you know cognitive development or the moral development of, of children, and those who exhibit antisocial behavior often don't engage in gameplay over a longer term time scale. They're they're not invited to the table. They they don't agree to cooperate with people. I mean, I think that like in the context of Bitcoin, I would posit that there is like this iterated gameplay where you know we're we're able to cooperate on a much much longer time scale, and it kind of reduces the incentive towards asocial behavior. And yeah, I guess I didn't have. Too much of a question there, but yeah, I, I think it, it's fascinating. And, and for people in the audience, again, if you Google Matthew, or go on YouTube and type in Matthew Perkowski, Jordan Peterson, I thought you guys had had a fascinating conversation. And as you might know, Matt, Jordan was at the Bitcoin conference last year in 2022. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's been really interesting to see his ideas around morality, gameplay, and, and you know, social behavior kind of begin to collide with Bitcoin. And that's that's had me uh, rather excited. And you know. It, there's anything you wanted to add on that topic, I'm happy to, to give you the floor. But I guess lastly, I kind of wanted to take us into a little bit more speculative territory. And mm -hmm. I, I, I want to kind of understand, like, you know, what is the role of like teleology or, or goal directed, directedness in terms of, you know, the, in terms of economics, I guess, like what is, what is the goal of the Bitcoin network? What is the goal of humanity? Or, I mean, you could even kind of generalize this as like, what is the objective of life? And I think, you know, again, this might be a mischaracterization, but I think 
Carl Fristad would say, you know, it's to maximize self-information and, you know, to minimize surprise. And like Michael Levin would say, it's to engender compassion amongst agents at the greatest scale. Um, and so with, with all that being said, like, do you have any thoughts on how to understand like what the goals of, I guess, the collective agent that is like human civilization, like, do you have any thoughts on, on how to understand the, the, the teleology of these types of systems? And if, you know, again, that's like, that could be a bit of a word salad. So feel free to push back. But yeah, we're curious your, your thoughts there. Yeah, I think the, and on, on the previous comments, I mean, I definitely think that, I mean, one thing, one book that I would definitely recommend is Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Carse on that topic. I think that's an excellent book, not a technical book, but I think it's, it's some insightful moral and social writing on the difference between finitude and infinitude and the ways in which we, the ways in which our, our, our conceptualizations of, of, of the world around us can tend towards highly moral or immoral spaces based largely on whether we see these, you know, the games in which we're embedded as, as finite or infinite games. I think the best definition of evil that I've ever encountered is in that book. Uh, but yeah, with respect to Jordan Peterson as well, yeah, I think that that part of that conversation was, I, I enjoyed it very much talking about iterated gameplay. I mean, fundamentally, there's a massive difference between one-shot interactions and and, and iterations where reciprocity reputation comes into play, where you have to mm -hmm. think about what, what, it, what, not just the consequences of like, take the money and run or take, you know, <laughs> there's a big difference between if you take the money and run and you never see the person again, versus you take the money and run and you run into a room of their relatives, right? <laughs> like different, different situations. If you do, if you play that out a thousand times, there's you know, very different social ethics emerge. And, you know, this is very much, this is very much of a piece with the Piagetian line of, of, of research into the gameplay as a mediation and various forms of gameplay as a mediation of those reciprocal interactions across time and the mechanism of gameplay as the way we understand right, or come into an embodied understanding of which kinds of interactions actually work across time and which don't. And that happens, that begins at a very young age. But I think identity is core to this as well. And just because this is a Bitcoin space and because this is something I noticed in the relatively recent history and is still relevant. I mean, I think that this is where perhaps Peterson was most, most misunderstood with respect to the comments he made with respect to identity anonymity. I think you know, he was coming from a place where he was very much trying to communicate the tendencies that emerge when people don't have to worry about iterated gameplay and reciprocity, not necessarily calling those people bad people, but the fact that for any person, if you don't have to worry at all about iterated gameplay with respect to your identity or your public-facing identity, I will tend to bring out darker aspects of your behavior if you don't keep a very close eye on that behavior. I think that point was 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 somewhat lost on many. I also think that you know he has a tendency to express himself poorly on Twitter. So, you know, that being said, whatever on the <laughs> on the on the theology front. On the teleology front, I think that, you know, the reason I, I did want to re-engage with that, that past line of iterated and, and iterated gameplay and finding infinite games, because fundamentally, you know, you ask, what are these ultimate goals? What are the ultimate endpoints toward which we are, toward which we are pointing, toward which we are orienting our behavior? I like the concept of a infinitely approachable attractor, something that I, <laughs> I, I use personally, like, you know, the Nor a North Star would be an I example of this, right? Like, 
we're on the planet where we're never going to reach the North Star, regardless of how we move on the planet. That being said, that, that unreachable entity can still be extremely useful in terms of orientation, navigation, and movement you know, through, through one's life or, or even for society, right? We, we place these celestial entities at the center of cyclic rituals in our societies because of the fact that they help to keep us oriented towards the transcendent beyond ourselves such that we don't fully, and this is kind of where that self-referentiality enters the picture again. Once you lose relationship to something outside of yourself, outside of your society, beyond the known, you tend to enter a mode of self-consumption and self-termination. And so, you know, for me, the point of all of this, so to speak, is, 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 is much more along the lines of orienting toward this, 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 this transcendent attractor of trying to understand what the constraints are that we're working within and trying to figure out how we can keep playing this game of life while also bringing more life along for the ride. Right. I, I, I do think that we have a responsibility as stewards. We have exhibited ourselves as an extremely powerful force on this planet. And to the extent that we can understand both ourselves, how we got here, and the systems within which we're embedded and where we're going in a way that enables that process to not just keep going, but increasingly manifest more complexity and manifest more novel creation and, and, and actually find ways of balancing that without destroying, without terminating many of the other threads of emergent life that are along for the ride. You know, I think that's, that's, that's kind of what I point at. And I, I do see, I do think we need new, like, I do think we need a fundamentally different form, collective, cooperative, symbolic mediation at global scale. If we are to actually achieve that, or if we are to actually even successfully pr pursue that goal. And I think that the only one of those on the menu that doesn't seem to end in catastrophe or tyranny looks like Bitcoin to me. I'm not saying I'm correct. I'm not saying I know that for sure, but you know, that's, that's my current belief and that's, that's what I've put my, my chips on. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'll say I definitely agree with you. And I think that, you know, the way you capitulate that in terms of increasing the complexity of, of life, you know, within our domain, while also not undercutting it and leading to self-termination is just such a thorny problem. And there are people out there, namely Daniel Schmachtenberger, whose work I've really enjoyed talking about the existential risks that come from, I guess, the optimization dynamics at play that, I guess, you know, economics could be capitulated as, like, in, you know, trying to understand, like, you know, as we become more and more complex, there become, I guess, more and more failure modes that we can engage in. And I think... I. I hope that he will begin to kind of engage with Bitcoin a little bit more to try and understand, I guess, how Bitcoin can keep us from from falling into those failure modes. And I, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you may have mentioned Daniel Schmachtenberger on a previous podcast, and I know you have an, an interest in existential risk. So I know we're we've been going for a while here, so I'd be happy to wrap things up. But would be you know curious if you any had any thoughts on you know how to speak about Bitcoin to those interested in existential risk, you know, what the relevance is. And then, you know, as well, like, you know, happy to, to, you know, the floor is yours. If there's anything we haven't covered that you think would be interesting or important or, or an important caveat to, to make, 
But overall, I mean, this has been absolutely fascinating. So I just want to thank you for for a, an incredibly engaging discussion. And for me, it's been great. I mean, I've been trying to understand ideas of complexity, emergence, and I guess kind of the cognitive science and thermodynamics of, of cognition. I think it's just, it's fascinating to see all of those things come together in Bitcoin. And so I think all that being said, I think it's just such a fertile ground for this type of inquiry as well. So I guess, first of all, like the, the existential risk question, are there, is there anything else you'd like to note there? And then if not, like be to give you, give you any parting thoughts. Sure, the extra, yeah, I'm definitely aware of, of Daniel's work and have interacted with him in person a couple of times. We've never spoken publicly, but yeah, I've met him a couple of times and, and I, I think that I am in many ways aligned with him. And then we also, we also diverge somewhat significantly in a number of ways. I don't, I don't, another thing that was mentioned there, and I think that, <laughs> I think that actually significantly contributes that the existential risk is our tendency, and this also ties into finite and infinite games, more open versus closed systems, or the analytic versus the emergent perspective, which I think are all sort of different ways of kind of saying the same thing, which is that when you create frameworks around objective functions, let's say, or optimization functions, you are, there's an implicit assumption there that fundamentally there is knowledge, there's sufficient knowledge of the system in all of its complexity, such that one may choose a global optimum or a global feature, let's say, or property or virtue toward which we should optimize, right? Toward which we should converge. I mean, think that fundamentally we don't live, this kind of goes back to that computationally irreducible problem, computational irreducibility problem. In so far as if, if, if we are not the kind of system that is computationally reducible, our tendency to reduce and represent through computation always needs to be couched in an understanding that that is a partial understanding. And the more we try to scale up powerful systems that are predicated on optimizing over narrow, uh, narrow domains or narrow preference regimes. We are going to create increasingly volatile sets of side effects. Like I think COVID was a very acute example of this, where because of the way that we have connected ourselves and now that we communicate at the speed of light, we became and tapped into this fear response that, and what happens when you have this kind of fight or flight response, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the capacity for rational, longer term, lower time preference thought, you know, that is inhibited and what you tend to get is a form of thought that becomes myopically focused on either moving you know, towards safety and away from threat, or, or if there's a disgust response involved, also potentially killing the source of disgust. And to the extent that we sort of locked ourselves in a feedback loop of a fear response and optimize over an extremely narrow band set of requirements and stopped integrating all of the longer term requirements associated with things like treating the entire global economy like a light switch that you could turn on and off without significant consequences, without considering the many other forms of you know, side effects or, or unintended consequences of, of health effects, of psychological effects, of pausing educational systems, of not seeing people's face, faces during childhood development, like all of these lists that we have no idea what we've done, right? It's a perfect example of what happens when we let ourselves be, when we let ourselves, when we give in to the siren song of optimization over simple objective functions. 
And so, you know, I would, I would just say that that's something that I, I very much, I very much caution against and, and that's difficult and it, you know, we don't have an answer and we've never had an answer and we probably will never have an answer with respect to what the singular optimization function should look like. But I think that's actually an essential feature of the life process. And one of the things that allows us to keep, to keep going as this kind of open-ended system and, and process that's constantly dealing with the existential tension involved in being an ordered system that is constantly chipped away at by the forces of entropy. So yeah, I think that's, you know, that's, that's my thought on that. And I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't have too much to add, too much to add beyond that. We've covered a ton of territory. You know, I don't know if you guys do questions or not, or, or bring in audience members. Happy to do that for a little while if you want, but yeah, it's been a good conversation. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you offering your thoughts there. And yeah, to anyone in the audience, if they have any questions for Matt, feel free to request to come up on stage and we would happily do that. But yeah, I guess, you know, as we wait for anyone to raise their hands, uh, Matt, like, is there anywhere people can find your work? Is there anything, you know, you're working on you'd like to point to? I mean, I'll just say, I encourage everyone to give Matt a follow. He's been, you know, dropping some really, really novel perspectives on Bitcoin that I think people could really benefit from. Like, if you feel like, you know, you've been going through the Bitcoin podcast circuit and, you know, hearing the same ideas capitulated over and over again, you know, you know, orange coin, good number go up, et cetera, et cetera. I think Matt offers a lot of really interesting ground for exploration. So yeah, I just also wanted to say thanks for, for offering your perspective. It's been, been, you know, incredibly interesting for me and I, I can't wait to read more. And I, I guess Matt also publishes some of his work on medium. So I checked that out. He has a, a crypto beyond capitalism series talking about the rise of distributed valorism that was incredibly interesting. So. Yeah, you know, if there's any anywhere you want to point people, Matt, feel free. And I'm not seeing any questions at the moment, so I, I figure we can kind of wrap up after that. Okay. Yeah. So I do most of my public facing communication right now on Twitter. I have a bunch of stuff that I probably have a bunch of notes and partially written essays, and and I am also working on a book, but that's that's not really ready yet. But Twitter, Twitter's probably the best place for now. I do have some of my previous writings on Medium, obviously, and then going to be working on a, or I am working on a company applying active inference to the modeling of, of emergent systems. So being able to model various systems like companies or, or parts of you know, economic networks or even technological networks, essentially cybernetic organisms as networked active inference systems. So if anyone's interested in that, potentially as, as a product or as a contributor, let me know. It's called Bioform Lab, so that we don't have much of a presence. We've been sort of under, you know, under the radar at this point. <clears throat> Got it. Yeah, and I guess on the note of cybernetics, I think Tomer Straylight will hear that we did have him on on the podcast quite a few months ago. But he was he's written a short essay talking about Bitcoin as a cybernetic metabrain, which I think was was a lot of fun. And so I'm I'm excited to pass this along to Tomer as well. But yeah, I don't think we have any questions. So Matt, I just want to thank you again. And thank you, Ted, for being a good sport and hosting from the main handle here. And yeah, thank you all for attending Cosmopoint. And, you know, we look forward to having more conversations like this at Bitcoin Amsterdam. And so those tickets are available now. And as well, we will be doing more like this at Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville next year. So come on down to, to Hashville in late July. It's going to be an awesome time. And yeah, without further ado, thank you, Matt. I look forward to staying in touch. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Awesome. Yeah, I totally agreed. Cool. Ted, feel free to, to take us out of here. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye now. Thank you, Miami, for the last three years in this amazing city. The whole world shut down. 
But Miami welcomed us with open arms. We want to show Bitcoin to the whole world. We are taking the conference on the road to set the stage for Bitcoin in a new city. Nashville. Bitcoin 2024 is coming to Nashville in Tennessee, a city that is known as a music and freedom city. Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville from July 25th to 27th. My fellow plebs, Bitcoin Magazine is headed back to Amsterdam in 2023. We're returning to Westergast to build on this historic success and continue our mission of global hyper-Bitcoinization. In its inaugural year, Bitcoin Amsterdam was the biggest European Bitcoin event in history. Held from October 12th to the 14th at Westergast Event Forum, nearly 3,000 attendees jumped at the opportunity to learn, engage, and party with fellow Bitcoiners. 126 brilliant speakers from all over Europe and beyond took the stage to represent different angles and present various perspectives. Offering six different on-site locations and three fully programmed stages, we are absolutely stoked to catapult the European community to the global stage. Tickets are at their lowest prices right now. Lock yours in at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. That's b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam.